This morning's text comes from 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 22 to 40. It's on page uh, 254 of the Green Bibles, up front uh, on each side of the stage, or in the back if you want to read along. Please pray with me. Lord, our God, in the reading and proclamation of Your Word, we pray that You illumine our minds and our hearts so that we may hear and understand Your Word, know and live accordingly to Your Word, and become living letters of Your Word, equipped to follow Jesus in every part of our lives by the power of Your Holy Spirit, through Christ our Lord, the living word. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Kings 18. So Ahab sent all of the Israelites and sent for all of the Israelites and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah then came near to all the people and said, "How long will you go limping with two different opinions?" If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. The people did not answer Him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets number 450. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves. Cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it. I will prepare another bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. Then you call the name of your God, and I will call the name of the Lord. The God who answers the fire is God indeed. All the people answered, well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. Then call on the name of your God but put no fire to it. So they took the bull that was given to them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, crying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no answer. They limped about the altar uh, that they had made. At noon, Elijah said to them, uh, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, surely he is a god. Either he is meditating or he has wandered away. Or maybe he's on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Then they cried aloud and, as was their custom, they cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out over them. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no answer, and no response. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come closer to me. And all the people came closer to him. First, he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. 
Then he made a trench around the altar, large enough to contain two measures of seed. Next, he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. He said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. Again, he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So that the water ran all around the altar and filled the trench also with water. At the time of the offering of the oblation, the prophet Elijah came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that You are God in Israel, that I am Your servant, and that I have done all of these things at Your bidding. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that this people may know, know that You, O Lord, are God, and that You have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the woods, the stones, and the dust, and even licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord indeed is God. The Lord indeed is God. Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. Then they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the Wadi Kashan and killed them there. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I figured that I should try a hockey illustration for one of my last sermons in Canada. And this one hits home especially close as I'm a little bit, a little bit of a fan of the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, since I have so many uh, Canadian friends uh, in seminary. I am convinced that this game ruined the Penguin shot at the Stanley Cup in 2013. It's actually the first round of the Stanley Cup playoff. playoffs. Monday, May 13th, 2013. It's Game 7 of a series between the hometown Boston Bruins and Canada's own Toronto Maple Leafs. Fast forward to the 11-minute mark in the third period. Toronto fans, with their all-too-familiar feeling deep down in their gut, this is our year. The the, the The game is 4-1, and it seems as though everything is in hand. Toronto all but shuts down their offense to focus on defense, and decide to get physical against the Bruins to take the life out of them. I imagine there were a few Maple Leaf faithfuls that hit the road a little early from Boston to head back across the border to celebrate with their fellow fans. This was the team that had all of the momentum that you could have in a series. The Leafs had tied up the series after being down three games to one. Goalie James Reimer had been lights out for the last two and a half games. And now, with 11 minutes left in the series, they were up 4-1. to For them to lose, they would have to give up twice as many goals in this 11-minute span as they did the previous two games. On paper, the game was over. The Bruins had no chance. The Leaves held just about every advantage possible. As you might know, three goals and 11 minutes later, 
it's overtime. A few minutes into overtime, and Marshan, Chara, and Tuka Rask are on their way to the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And one round later, they're defeating my hometown, Pittsburgh Penguins. And I think that some of you Canucks fans uh, know a similar narrative all too well. The two-seed Canucks against the seven-seed Flames. All of the playoff experience on one side of the ice. One team possessing every advantage possible in nearly every statistical category. Three quick goals and a hushed crowd at the Scotiabank Saddle Dome, and everyone was sure that Game 7 would come back to Vancouver and they would finally eliminate the Young Flames. On paper, the game was over. The Flames had no chance, and the Canucks had every advantage possible. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. Elijah has finally had enough. The last seven chapters of 1 Kings culminates in this phrase. Since the death of King Solomon back in chapter 11 of 1 Kings, the Hebrew people had been sitting on a fence post between the field of Yahweh and the field of Baal. From the sounds of it, the people were more than happy on top of the fence. After, uh, after the amount of practice that they were put, putting in, it wouldn't be surprising to hear that any day now they would try their chances as they would make their transition from professional status, or from amateur status to full-blown professionals. How long are you planning on sitting on that fence post? Make a decision once and for all. Is it going to be Yahweh? Or is it going to be Baal? Elijah's fired up. He doesn't have the time for this. And the response that he gets, it's about as fence post as it gets. It's a big collective meh. All right then, Elijah says to himself, just as I figured, the speech didn't work. Now we're on to plan B. A good old-fashioned duel. God against God. Yahweh against Baal the title, The One True God. The problem was, on paper, this wasn't a fair matchup at all. Baal had all of the advantages. 450 prophets to one prophet. The pick of the first bull, as if one was easier to uh, burn in some way. The advantage of going first, because, well, let's be honest, we think that if Baal had sent down fire from heaven, that Yahweh would have been given a chance. And the crowds finally respond to Elijah after this. Their response progresses from a meh to well-spoken. I love this translation. The basic essence of the phrase in its original language is something like this. That's agreeable, or that sounds fair, which... It surely wasn't. But I like the translation, well spoken, Elijah. So the prophets of Baal grab their bull. They quarter it. They place it on the altar and they begin crying out, Baal, answer us. Baal, answer us. The phrase on repeat for the next 
three hours. Uh, like your favorite 1990s compact disc with scratches all over it. Bail, answer us. Bail, answer us. But there was no voice, no answer. Then at about noon, some 400 some odd prophets start pulling out all of the stops. They start pouring out their own blood as a sacrifice, which was clearly not part of the agreement earlier. But hey, what's another advantage? They cut themselves with swords. They cut themselves with lances. But there was no voice. There was no answer. And there was no response. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a name that has become more and more popular in recent years in Christian writing. First, Eric Metaxas released a biography of the German pastor, of theolo- pastor and theologian. Then, just last year, another acclaimed biography was written by uh, the scholar Charles Marsh. Though two different angles on Bonhoeffer's life, both captured the storyline that found Bonhoeffer in a concentration camp and ultimately his execution. As you read through both of the books, it becomes more and more clear that the German church uh, throughout the early 20th century became what we might call professional fence-sitters. You might have found yourself visiting a German evangelical church back in the early 1930s. It was a uh, sight to behold. History, art, and beauty all came together in this sacred space. You would see the biblical narratives on each side of the wall in stained glass uh, as, you, as you approached the daunting building. You might make your way towards the huge entrance doors only to see a poster on the right side of the doors. In an old medieval font, it reads, The German Evangelical Church. The script is flanked on each side by a traditional Christian cross and a swastika to the left. If you could muster up the strength to make your way into the service, you would hear a mix of traditional hymns, familiar Bible stories alongside Nazi propaganda. Somehow, someway, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of love, of redemption, of covenant and of justice became entwined with an ideology of hate, of racism, and of death. And while this is certainly an extreme situation, we have a lot to learn from here. Both of the biographers of Bonhoeffer noted that his life is of great value for Christians today. While we don't have to worry about the threat of the National Socialist Party of Germany, there are other threats that are much harder for us to notice. Like the gospel of individualism and autonomy. This is the gospel of country music singer Josh Turner. Just me and God. I've got my Bible, my computer, and a little bit of spare time. I don't need anyone else. The gospel of pluralism. The gospel where, we, uh, where each and every road leads to heaven. Each one of us is blindfolded and touching a different part of a divine elephant. And the all too popular gospel of millennials these days, millennials these days, where we just need to be good people 
where Christian practices act as practical therapy sessions and God acts as our clinical therapist. And where God is way out in space somewhere, sitting uh, with his cosmic uh, tobacco pipe, only sometimes remembering that there is something in the universe that he created by his voice. Each one is as popular as it gets. Each one is as acceptable and embraced as the other. Each one is ultimately a compromise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Elijah decides to have a little fun at the expense of the prophets of Baal. In no way should this be used as a foundation for interfaith dialogue. But it's just too good to leave out. They're in a competition where they have all of the advantages. Advantages on top of advantages. And their God is a no-call, no-show. Maybe uh, maybe he's out praying. Uh This might be the time of the year where he heads down to Bermuda for a vacation. Maybe he has uh, fallen asleep. Or worse yet, maybe the guy had to go relieve himself. After the Baal worshippers had been given an advantageous amount of time, Elijah summons the crowd to draw near. Instead of wailing around, instead of cutting himself open, Elijah starts with the simple task of rebuilding the altar of the Lord. The twelve stones at the foundation represent the twelve tribes of Israel. Elijah reminds the people where they're from. He reminds them of their story. He reminds them of the faithfulness of God to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Elijah has placed has trees placed on these twelve stones. He quarters the bull and scatters its parts on those trees. There are four big jars sitting over to the side. Elijah orders them to be filled with water and poured over the offering. Then repeated two more times. Twelve times is the offering washed with water. Twelve times for the twelve stones. Twelve stones for the whole of the, of the ancient nation of Israel. God remembers His covenant with His people. He washes away their past transgressions, their rebellion, and their limping. And there, after all of the exhaustion of that hot, late summer day in the middle of a drought, on top of a mountain, fire falls from heaven. Fire so hot, so intense, so efficient that it burned out the bull, the trees, the stones, and the twelve jarfuls of water. And let's rightly credit the main actor in this whole story. It's God who brings down fire from the sky, and it's God who turns back the hearts of His people. Elijah was not the main actor here. The people were not the ones who were turning their own hearts back after the the heat had finally cooled. God is the one who is working in this story. Despite all of the advantages, the one true God, Yahweh, shows up on the mountain that day. The glory of God 
shone bright at the first of two mountaintop experiences that Elijah will have in chapters 18 and then in chapter 19. And God is the one who is working in our own stories. Of course, we're not the ones uh, that are witnessing the fires uh, coming down from the heavens that are consuming bulls and altars and water. But we are people who are living in a world where God has sent His own Son, Christ Jesus, from the heavens. That Christ became human, going through everything that we have gone through taught on the kingdom of heaven to give us hope and mission as a church. He died and resurrected gloriously to defeat sin, death, and the devil, and all of our fence-sitting. And we live with the hope and with the anticipation that He will come again in glory, ushering in the kingdom of God. God turns our hearts back to Him in spite of of all of the trends and in spite of the so-called glories of individualism and autonomy and the attractive theologies of moralistic therapeutic deism, God is calling us, His people, back off of the fence and into His field. We certainly respond to that grace with obedience, but we are not the main actors in our turning around. We live in a world where God has already victoriously shown up. The powers and the advantages of sin and death were no match. We live in a world where an incarnation has happened, where God has become a human. We live in a world where a resurrection has happened, where God was victorious. And we live in a world that waits in eager anticipation for the glorious return of our victorious King, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. Good and gracious God, we are in awe of all that You have done in Your Word in your world and in our lives. Remind us who the main actor is in our own stories. Remind us that you are the victorious and glorious King. Help us to see that in in all that we do in the next uh, week as we come back to worship uh, your glorious name next Sunday. Remind us of our story in the middle of your story. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.